Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 4, Episode 1. Do schools even matter anyway? Welcome to the premiere of Ed Infinitum's fourth season. As we launch our podcast's fourth year, we're seeing what we hope is the beginning of the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, as vaccinations are on the rise and schools across the nation are closing down remote learning and returning to in-person classes. Now, as to whether that's a good move at this point in time or not remains a big question, but not, as it turns out, the question we'll be taking up in this episode. For our season premiere, we'll instead be tackling an even bigger question. Should we care whether schools are in person or not? Should we care how schools teach at all or what they teach? Does school, in short, matter? Of course, we'll need to start by defining just what we mean by matter, because this is a social science podcast, and social science research is all about determining just what it is you're trying to measure. In this case, we're trying to figure out how much of an impact whatever happens in school has on students' learning outcomes and future success, as measured in a couple of different ways, including standardized test scores, graduation rates, future earnings, and and the similar indicators that social scientists tend to use when trying to define just what it means to be successful. We're trying to figure out whether school has as much of an impact on all of that as factors like income, wealth, neighborhood, family structure. And this is an incredibly important question to ask because it cuts to the heart of the deeply enshrined place that school holds in the American meritocratic narrative. Education is supposed to be the engine that powers the conveyor belt of upward mobility. The idea that you're supposed to be able to come from a humble background, but work hard in school and use what you learn to achieve a better socioeconomic status than your forebearers is pretty central to the philosophies of just about every public figure who's ever touted the value of education, including Horace Mann, Booker T. Washington, Andrew Carnegie, Lyndon Johnson, Malcolm X, Bill Gates, It's one of the vanishingly few, in fact, maybe the only, point of agreement that Red America and Blue America still seem to swear by. And yet the incredible irony here is that what is perhaps the single most comprehensive and respected study of American public education, all 737 pages of it, in many ways makes the argument that, well, the effect of the experience of schooling on students can be pretty negligible in the face of all of those other factors outside the school grounds that influence students' educational lives. Now, before all my listeners who are professional educators decide to just throw up their hands, turn in their chalk, does anyone even actually still use chalk anymore, and seek a more lucrative career in, well, most any other professional field, there is much more to the story. And if you think by the end that we'll arrive at a crystal clear answer to the question of do schools matter, you probably haven't been listening to this podcast for very long. But I do promise that by the time you're done listening, you will have learned something. After all, no giant report has ever come out refuting the educational impact of podcasts. So what is this giant report I keep referring to? Why, the 1966 National Center for Education Statistics study entitled Equality of Educational Opportunity, which, as of 2016 anyway, was still receiving over 600 Google Scholar citations per year. But in the field of educational scholarship and policy, it's much better known by its shortcut title, 
the Coleman Report. Who was this Coleman person with so much influence over the way we understand schooling's impact? James Samuel Coleman grew up in rural Indiana and Ohio and Kentucky during the Great Depression. His father was a teacher, but when James was young, his dad quit that profession to pursue a series of manufacturing jobs. James Coleman went on to serve briefly in the Navy and then earn a degree in chemical engineering from Purdue University. But from grade school through college, the distinguishing feature of his educational career was that he didn't think much of school. Of course, neither did he think much of his new career at Eastman Kodak either. The job world felt as boring to him as the classroom. In his autobiography, Coleman describes his eventual decision to attend graduate school at Columbia University as one of, quote, resolving to give the educational system one last chance. It had failed, I felt, through high school and the several colleges I had attended. My teachers had been engaged in transmitting information, but none had been interested in me and what I might do with the information they had imparted." End quote. Fortunately for Coleman, the field of graduate study in social psychology wound up being more transformative than he could have hoped. He reportedly wowed the socks off all of his professors. And as he excelled, he became fiercely interested in social inequality. The popularized story is that this interest crystallized during a dinner party where Coleman realized that so many of his fellow graduate students, as well as the university alumni present, had gone to elite private schools and that their educational experience had been worlds different than his own had been in the public schools of the rural American heartland. Coleman earned his doctorate and went on to teach first at the University of Chicago and later at Johns Hopkins where he wound up founding what would become their Department of Sociology, as well as launching an entire new academic field called Mathematical Sociology. Coleman conducted and authored a number of respected studies about the impact of educational inequality, but the one we always talk about today, his crowning achievement, began in the wake of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, among its many provisions, mandated that the government undertake and produce a report describing inequality in elementary and secondary education across the United States, and in particular between white and African-American students, especially in the South. Coleman was one of several prominent scholars tapped for this endeavor, and they began what remains one of the most massive studies of American schooling ever undertaken, a sample of over 4,000 schools and 600,000 students in grades 1, 3, 6, 9, and 12. Although this might sound odd to call radical today, the Coleman Report did something that at the time was truly radical. They assessed student performance through standardized testing. Yes, the SAT had been around for some time now, see Season 1, Episodes 12 and 13 for its story, but that was a test taken by what was even then a minority of high school students who were bound for college. The idea of standardized testing of students while they were still in their primary and secondary grades for research purposes was pretty uncommon, not the least reason for which was that it was so expensive to undertake. But Coleman's team had tons of government cash to play with, and so they amassed a mountain of data, and not just from standardized tests either. They also collected lengthy qualitative interviews with students and teachers alike. Did I say the report was 737 pages long? Uh, that's without all the data tables. There was another 548-page volume with all the descriptive statistics. Did I also mention they completed and published all this research within two years, start to finish, in an era before computers? But all that speed and perhaps lack of word processing software to provide easy edits 
did produce a report that was, frankly, kind of impenetrable for most laypeople to understand. Speaking honestly, even as an education scholar, I find it a pretty challenging read. I don't feel quite so bad, though. Sociologist-turned-Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan organized a group of 80 fellow eggheads at Harvard, and they couldn't come to an absolute consensus about just what conclusions one should draw from all that data Coleman and his team collected. Part of the reason for all this is that research methodologies have changed a great deal since Coleman's time. In fact, even in his time, those methods were changing, and I won't bore you with the details, but a lot of contemporary criticism of the Coleman Report revolves around issues with the way they collected and interpreted their data. Still, I don't want to give you the impression that the report was full of meaningless mumbo-jumbo. Whatever quibbles researchers might have had with one part or another of this massive endeavor, all of those parts, one after the other, from so many different angles, kept pointing to the same conclusion which I will quote from the report's own summary. Quote, Taking all these results together, one implication stands out above all, that schools bring little influence to bear on a child's achievement that is independent of his background and general social context, and that this very lack of an independent effect means that the inequalities imposed on children by their home, neighborhood, and peer environment are carried along to become the inequalities with which they confront adult life at the end of school." End quote. Wow. Now, as with any work of biblical-level scope and complexity, different parties derived and continue to derive today different interpretations from it. For President Johnson and civil rights-era liberals, the Coleman Report was a battle cry to charge ahead with school desegregation because clearly entrenched racist disparities were to blame for African-American students' apparent lack of mobility despite everything schools were doing. Fiscal conservatives latched onto the idea that per-pupil expenditure didn't correlate much with school outcomes, so therefore the lesson clearly is don't pump money into schools, it's a waste. For many liberal social reformers, the report's highlighting of the influence of family translated to a message that schools will accomplish nothing without government taking responsibility to carry out massive anti-poverty programs to help families. For many social conservatives, the message they derived was schools will accomplish nothing if families don't take personal responsibility for raising their children with the right, i.e. highly traditional by their definition, values. Let's talk a little bit about this family piece, because subsequent studies in the 2000s, including some work from the Rand Corporation, have reinforced what are called family process factors, even detached from socioeconomics as influencing variables on students' academic success. These are things like high parental expectations and beliefs about academic achievement, access to books and computers in the household, having a library card, parental involvement in school events, regular communication with parents of the child's peers, involvement in academic and cultural activities outside of school hours. Many of these studies give evidence that these factors are really hard to disentangle from socioeconomic status i.e. it tends to be more well-off families who are able to take their kids to museums or attend PTA events, but these factors still do correlate with student achievement even when various steps are taken to hold those socioeconomics constant. Now, to be fair, the way Coleman attempted to hold family constant and distant from the influence of school or neighborhood is one of the places where nowadays we look at his methodology and say it doesn't really hold water. But for our purposes in this episode, we don't need to parse out how much of, say, single parenthood or having incarcerated parents is and isn't separable from what neighborhood you live in or what your family income is. We can just file all these under the category, things that schools don't control. 
It is one of these family process factors, in fact, that emerges over the decades as the single strongest predictor of a child's academic success, not just in the USA either, but in many other nations around the world as well, and that is parental level of formal education. In some studies, that boils down even further, specifically to mother's level of formal education. Now, while it's hard to establish whether this is a direct or indirect effect, parental level of education has the most predictive effect on everything, from school grades to test scores to the number of years a child will spend in formal education and even some later life outcomes in the career world. Being a highly educated parent means you are more likely to engage in all kinds of activities that are also associated with academic success, like reading to your children, using more extensive vocabulary, and having give-and-take kinds of conversations with questions being posed and answered with your children, as opposed to just giving orders and expecting obedience. It can get a little complicated, as parental level of education is not always an entirely separable factor from what happens inside a school building, because, of course, one of the ways in which a mother's educational level might affect her child's learning is through her choice of school for her child to attend, or through her influence to make sure that her child gets the best teachers or best course selection. And of course, this brings us back to family income, which increases the likelihood that any given parent lives in a school district with a school that has more options and better teachers and all of those perks that come with the nature of the United States' public school system being a disparate collection of 13,000-ish separate districts, each funded at the local level and thus wildly inequitable savagely inequitable, to quote Jonathan Kozal, in what resources they're able to bring to bear to educate the students within them. But here's the thing. If it really all does come down to this interconnected ball of income and family structure and family level of education, neighborhood of residence, amount of lead in the water, if what actually happens inside the school is at best a small part of that equation that determines students' academic success and long-term outcomes, then it begs the question, why are we spending so much gosh darn time and money trying to decide what to teach in schools and how best to teach it? For kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, is this all just a matter of rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic? And for kids who come from wealth and family stability, is this all just about adding garnish to a pre-made meal? I will tell you that anyone who works in public education, sooner or later, has to come face to face with the specter of that kind of determinism. Which is why I also want to bring in the work of folks like NYU sociologist Barbara Haynes, whose research argues that what happens within the walls of the school very much does matter. With nationally representative data, she and others have found that students from poor and wealthy backgrounds alike learn at more or less the same rate during the school year. It's during the after-school times, the weekends, the summers, the other vacations, that's when the influence of a more affluent home and the kind of supplements that money and family stability can provide exert their biggest influence. Far from arguing that school doesn't matter, Professor Haynes instead argues that without the presence of all that time spent in school and all the things that happen within classrooms during the school day, well, those savage inequalities would be even worse that school, in essence, is a place where kids from less affluent or less stable family situations can make up a lot of ground in sprints, even if they're still being outpaced in the marathon by their more privileged counterparts. If schools do matter, then does that mean increasing time spent within school-type environments leads to more equity? 
That is the thinking behind programs like Head Start that expand formal education in the early childhood years. Studies of Head Start's effects in upstate New York, Chicago, Ypsilanti, Michigan, several locations in North Carolina, all demonstrated long-term benefits such as increases in high school graduation rates and future earnings years later, and decreases in the probability of being arrested five or more times. The problems tend to come when educators then try and replicate any given intervention in a new location, or sometimes even in a new year. A lot of these programs wind up being highly idiosyncratic to a particular place, time, or group of students, or teachers, or families. That's the problem with education research writ large. The conditions of schooling have so many variables that it's just really hard to compare apples to apples in the way that you would need to create some sort of one-size-fits-all applicability. But even within that whole tangle of yarn, an influential 1998 analysis of 400,000 students in 3,000 schools did manage to disentangle and isolate one variable as the most important school-related factor influencing students' achievement across a variety of contexts. And that variable was teacher quality. Even when you hold aside class sizes and other common factors, many later studies attempted to more specifically isolate just what made for teacher quality and generally, our definition wound up crystallizing around teachers' own education and years of experience. Taken all together, these findings, that what impact schools do have on student achievement and later life outcomes largely boils down to how good the individual teachers are in that school, did get a little hijacked by the outcomes-based movement of the early 2000s, which I describe at length in Season 1, Episode 2 of this podcast, as well as in the three-part finale of Season 2. A lot of folks in policy circles who wanted easy answers and easy scapegoats basically wound up making the argument that if low-income students, especially low-income students of color, aren't succeeding, we don't have to look at all those societal factors and massive income inequalities and pervasive structural racism. Now, it's all the fault of those lazy teachers. We just need them to work harder. We need to hold them more accountable. We need to fire them if their students' test scores don't rise and reward them if they do. And, well, that led to a national series of massive cheating scandals, which took us three episodes to detail at the end of Season 2. And I do highly recommend you go listen to those now if you haven't already. Basically, what we know, and what should give us hope if we're educators ourselves, is that teachers do make a difference. That doesn't mean, though, that any given teacher, therefore, has the power to single-handedly overcome all of those out-of-school factors. It means that, in the admittedly small realm in which schools do have influence over students' life outcomes, in those places, teachers really can have an impact. So, in answer to our episode's title question, do schools matter? Yes, it seems they do. That they don't seem to matter as much as so many external variables in a young person's life doesn't mean they don't matter at all. In fact, what the research seems to show is that while schools may not be the engine of meritocratic advancement that the American narrative sets them out to be, they're also not ineffectual in that regard. They are, in fact, all that keeps our society from becoming even more inequitable and stratified. Also, if students do make it all the way to and through college, there is a rather persuasive body of evidence that college attendance and graduation have significant impacts on economic mobility. A takeaway here, then, isn't that schools aren't important, it's that schools can't do it alone. A 2017 study by UC Berkeley economist Jesse Rothstein highlights the need for higher minimum wages, stronger labor unions, and job opportunities with local industries that 
need to be in play alongside school quality to really get that engine of social mobility running. As the United States continues down a path of record economic inequality, the conversation really needs to be much bigger than the question, do schools matter? But the short answer I am confident in saying is yes, in the same way that eating breakfast matters. We need it to be healthy, even if cornflakes alone aren't going to give us everything we need. And by the way, this entire discussion has hinged upon this very narrow definition of schools mattering in terms of things like graduation rates, college attendance, and future economic earnings. There are, of course, other impacts that school has on all of us when we are students in terms of shaping our social skills, our worldviews, our patterns of behavior, our goals and aspirations. Schools are an extremely formative force in all of our lives in these regards. So to any listeners considering becoming educators, or who may be wondering whether or not to remain as educators in the field, don't kid yourself into thinking that what you do has little to no impact with the young people that you spend all those hours with every week. A 2010 ING Foundation survey of a representative sample of 1,000 Americans found that 88%, 88% said they had a teacher who had a significant positive impact on their lives. And when was the last time that you heard 88% of Americans agreeing on anything? Go out there. Do some good and stay with us for season four of Ed Infinitum. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www ed-infinitum.com and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new.